First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome, everyone, and for me, a special treat. Michael Feinstein, whom I haven't talked to in a long time, but probably one of our best-known pianists, singers, musical historian. In fact, I really think I was trying to remember, but it was Michael that introduced me to the Great American Songbook. And Michael is probably one of the leading figures in this country when it comes to the songbook, to music, to American theater. He's been nominated for Grammy so many times. He's a platinum-selling artist. He is, and I have to make sure I'm getting that right. Michael, now you're artistic director for the Center for Performing Arts in Carmel, Indiana. Yes, that's where we have our Great American Songbook Foundation, which uh, introduces high school and young people to the classic American song. So tell me, how did everything land in Carmel, Indiana? Well, first of all, forgive me. The pronunciation there is Carmel, Carmel. unlike Carmel by the sea in California. (laughs) Right, or Carmel that you eat. Right. (laughs) Well, it uh, landed there because the city of Carmel, Indiana, is um, uh, it's a model city. It was named by Money Magazine as one of the top best, most livable cities in the country because of the combination of uh, education, of culture, building a new performing arts center and corporations moving there. It's contiguous to Indianapolis, and they made me an offer that I couldn't refuse to bring this uh, foundation to preserve American popular song there because they supplied partially staff and funding and we're building a museum. And also the location is in the heart of America. It's two hours from Chicago and it's, it's located in a place where uh, people are culturally hungry for it. And so it all sort of was, a, I guess, a perfect storm. And so you're there. What is it like maintaining a residence there? Well, I'm nowhere full time, you know, because I'm touring all the time. So uh, I'm part time there. I'm part time in New York. I have a place in Central Park South and part time in uh, Los Angeles because my mother is there. uh, Ninety five. God bless. And, Mm. uh, you know, so uh, and then I'm on the road. I just was in Cincinnati and I'm going to Greensboro. North Carolina, uh, and I'm, I'm moving around. So, yeah, but uh, you've always moved around. And your mother, as you said, God bless her, 95 now. Um, your parents, they knew they had a talented son, and they gave you wings. They let you go and to go explore and do your thing when you were a kid. Yeah, that's so true, Joan, because... When I graduated high school, all my friends were going to college, and and my parents never said anything. And I went to my mom and said, aren't you going to ask me if I'm going to college? And she said, well, you didn't say anything about it, so we figured you didn't want to go. And I went, oh. (laughs) And I started playing piano bars, and uh, it became my profession. One thing led to another. So that that is very unusual. But it was all unusual because you met – the Gershwins, I remember you telling me this story. Um, I forget what year, maybe the 70s, 77. And 
the widow of Oscar Levant introduced you to Ira Gershwin. Is that, do I remember that right? Or Yes, you even got the year right, so don't ever doubt your memory. <laughs> yeah. No, sir. Yeah, it's, yes, I met, uh, I moved to Los Angeles uh, late in 1976 when I was 20 years old, and I met June Levant, Oscar Levant's widow, and Oscar Levant being the, the great Gershwin interpreter and the wit who said funny things, you know, like he was in Doris Day's first movie, and later he said, mm. I knew Doris Day before she became a virgin. Uh, <laughs> That's right. And he said, Elizabeth Taylor, uh, when, when, when Elizabeth Taylor left Eddie Fisher to marry Richard Burton, Oscar said, how high could anyone stoop? <laughs> But anyway, June Levant introduced me to the Gershwins, Ira Gershwin, who wrote the lyrics to the songs. Ira was 80 years old, and I uh, ended up spending six years working for Mr. and Mrs. Gershwin, and it taught me uh, most of what I know about interpreting the songs that I now uh, perform all over the world. Yes, including you've done shows on Broadway, Michael Feinstein in concert, and just extraordinary things. And it all started when you were just a kid, and it started working. Yes, yes. Uh, it's it's fun to um, try and reinvent the songs and make them interesting for contemporary audiences, because now we live in a time when most people were not alive uh, when these songs were at their peak popularity. And because of that, uh, now I'm introducing new generations to this music, and I find uh, a, a sort of a divide, if you will, because some people absolutely connect with this music instantly, and there are other people who don't listen to words. When they listen to music, they'll listen to the beat or the production or the sound, and to to focus in on listening to lyrics is something that is, for some people, a lost art. And so I can always tell whether somebody's really uh, connecting or dialed in with the music as to how they how their physical and bodily response uh, uh, reflects that. And how do you find, because you have an academy and competitions, high school kids over the country, are they very different from when you were a kid in high school? What do you sense is their musical leaning these days? We live in a time, of course, when there is no arts education in schools or very little. That's another reason I like Carmel, Indiana, because they have strong arts programs in their schools. But most most young people are not exposed to different kinds of music in school, if any. You know, they only hear the pop music on the radio. So they don't know classical music. They don't know jazz. They don't know other genres. Uh, they just don't know it. They've never been exposed to it. So with with young people, <clears throat> excuse me, with young, with the high school people who joined the, the Great American Songbook Foundation Academy, the annual academy, some of them have come to popular song through Broadway. Uh, or musical theater, their parents introduced the musical theater, or somebody in their family plays recordings of Ella Fitzgerald or Louis Armstrong. Some are interested in jazz. Uh, it comes from usually their their family, their parents, or uh, community theater. Uh, 
but there are also young people who have discovered different kinds of music on the Internet because the wonderful thing about our world today is that you can find and learn anything, discover any kind of music on the Internet. And it, I, I'm a record collector. When I was a kid, I used to travel all over the place to try and find a rare uh, recording of uh, Bing Crosby from 1931, and I'd have to pay 40 bucks for it. Now you can go online and find it and download it and listen to it, and it's, and it's there. I mean, the resources are extraordinary. And so there are some very intrepid young people that are consumed with this music, and they go out and find it, and they're very knowledgeable. So it's fascinating. You know, I always find it interesting. When I was a kid, going to theater was part of life. It wasn't that expensive. We would go every week, whatever was up and around. And I could sing from every Broadway show. I knew every lyric. And my kids are still amazed, like, how do you know that? I said, we all did that. But today kids mm-hmm. have even heard of half these songs. Yeah, it's a different time. And young people consume music differently. And uh, so it's a, it's a whole different thing. It, 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 there's visual elements, and it's, and it's about beat, and it's about feeling. But young people absolutely listen to lyrics. I don't know how many... Uh, can recite a very uh, complex uh, rap or hip hop piece, but but the words are important. Uh, the words are are not not the same form. It's a completely different thing now. And um, I always tell people that the Great American Songbook is ever evolving because I don't believe that it's there's a the, an end date or an end cap on it. I think that. There are songs being written today that if they're collectively known in 25 years and sung and heard by millions of people, they'll become part of the the eternal songbook. But I hear contemporary music, and I couldn't tell you what, what is going to last because it's only time that Who determines knows? that. And my sensibility is different, but that, that it's, it, it's, it, it, change, it always happens with every generation. Every generation always says, well, our music was better, and, and this, is, this is awful, and and then it sort of becomes assimilated, and, and, and life goes on. And what's happening when it comes to CDs and albums? Do you constantly keep up with that and do it yourself? Well, uh, my, my most recent release, uh, which is called Gershwin Country, that was on the country charts, actually, which was a great thrill. It's, it's duets with country singers, including Dolly Parton and Brad Paisley. But Gershwin Country was released on CD on compact disc, and then, of course, all the download and streaming services also offer it. And so some people only know the recording, uh, Gershwin Country, through uh, Spotify or listening to it online, and then other people still want to have the physical CD. My fans, uh, uh, it's a real mixture. Uh, but, of course, when one listens online, they don't necessarily listen to the, the recording in a linear fashion as one would with a CD or an old LP. You know, it's programmed and it's meant to be heard in a sequence. But now people will listen out of sequence or pick a favorite track or create their own playlist. So that's all different. So the, the unifying factor of, of one album with, with liner notes and with the visuals and the photos, all that, that's all changed for, for most people. And what about, Michael, I know you're on tour a lot. Has that changed over the years? It's changed in the sense that when I first started, I only played solo. You know, I, I mean, I'd play the piano for myself and I'd sing. 
And uh, now I do a lot of symphony concerts. I do uh, tr concerts, work with a jazz trio. I work with Ted Firth, the amazing pianist who uh, is often my musical director. I'll do big band shows. I do different kinds of shows. Some shows, uh, the, I've been doing a Judy Garland show called Get Happy in celebration of a centennial. And that's multimedia where I have home movies supplied by the Garland family, by Liza and Mark and Joe, Garland's children. So there's home movies and there's, there's inter it's sort of interactive. So uh, I do different kinds of shows. Uh, but the other day I did a show at Carnegie Hall and it was just with a, a, a band and no, no bells and whistles, just singing the songs. And, and uh, um, it was a great evening because it was very relaxed and uh, a lot of fun. And of all the things you do and are still doing, what's top of the Feinstein list? I want to write more songs. I've been writing more lately, and uh, my my ambition is to someday produce a recording that is completely original material. Um, I have, I've started to put a, a few of my own songs into my concerts beside the uh, the standards. Uh, I'll be playing the Carlisle Hotel uh, December for three weeks through New Year's Eve and doing holiday music, or as my grandmother would call it, holiday music. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, and I, I hope to include a couple of original things, too. So that's the fun for me, to, uh, to uh, add to the, the repertoire. And where is home? If someone said, pick the place that says, hello, welcome home. What would that be? Mm. I'm a resident of, of Carmel, Indiana. I'm a resident of Indiana. Uh, but because my mother is in California and um, I've spent so many years there, as much as Indiana is home, California is also home. Mm -hmm. And your mom must take such pleasure in seeing your enormous success over the years. She is a, a, a proud Jewish mother, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, she was smart. She didn't push her boy to become a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. She let you follow your heart. Yes, and it, I didn't realize till later how unusual that is. And uh, it's true. It's true. They recognized, my parents recognized that I had a passion for music and if it weren't for music, I, I wouldn't be happy in my soul. I mean, I uh, chemically, I had a, uh, 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 a DNA test where they measure different things in the body. And I, I lack, among other things, dopamine. I lack pleasure receptors. And my doctor said he doesn't know how it's possible that I'm not a drug addict or an alcoholic because I don't have natural um, dopamine. Highs, yeah. I, I don't have it. But the mute, but the reason that I'm happy is because of the music. That's what makes me happy. And always from the time you were a young guy. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's my drug. Well, what a good drug to have. And how fortuitous that people recognize the talent early on. And instead of saying, oh, he's another kid who plays the piano and who sings, they nurtured it and gave a gift not only to you, but to all the rest of us. Oh, thank you. You know, Michael, I remember the early years when we were doing our show from Sardis with the great Arlene Francis.
And on that crummy Sardi's piano, which is older than I am, you would create magic. Do you remember that? Everyone would say, you can't ask him to play that piano. And I said, well, I have to ask him. It's the only piano they have. And what came out of that piano shocked even the piano. It was like, wow, how'd that happen? Well, that was a fun time. It was a thrill, you know, to come to Sardis. And eventually they they put my caricature on the wall. And that's, you know, thanks to, to you and Arlene for having me there so often that they I became familiar there. So, I know. Was, it's interesting, it isn't it? Um, when you think about the things that you care about, you know, you would never have thought that was such a deal. But it's such a deal. Yeah, and, true. And it makes such a difference. Do you think Broadway thoughts these days? Um, occasionally, uh, yeah, I toy with the idea of it. But, you know, the world, right now, everything is um, is in transition. And arts are in transition as audiences are changing and there's more streaming and all that. And I'm trying to think of something that I would want to do on Broadway that would be the live experience, you know, that that that, that is that is most uh, appropriate for that uh, venue. And I'm thinking about uh, a show uh, about my relationship with Ira Gershwin, kind of like my own Tuesdays with Maury, because that's the kind of effect he had on me. I would love that. I think everyone would love that. And they were such times. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I caught the tail end of of meeting all of my musical heroes, or the ones who were still alive. So I met Ira, and through Ira, I met uh, Leonard Bernstein and Burton Lane and, and Harold Arlen and Harry Warren and Andre Castellanitz, and their dear friend was Lauren Bacall and Condon and Green and I mean, it was it was amazing to meet these all of these people, and now I try to carry forward their songs the way that they wanted them interpreted, and and so uh, it, it all happened because as a twenty year old, I cared about what came before me, and even though there was a sixty year age difference between Ira and myself, we literally spoke the same language, the same musical language. So mm. that that's interesting, I think. And were, it would not only be interesting, it would make for great theater because each and every one of those people has a story that's unbelievable and an impact on you. Were they all good to you? Yes, yes. Uh, um, the only person who was prickly, and, it, and, it's not, and it's not me personally, it was with everybody, was, was Stephen Sondheim. You know, who could be absolutely wonderful. And, and you know, the, the letters and the kindness he showed to so many people was incredible. Uh, but he also was, was an alcoholic. And sometimes he could get very mean. And and um, uh, I was the victim of his wrath on a couple of occasions. And other times he, he was the kindest man on the planet. Uh, but that was because of his his, uh, his addictions, you know. Yeah. It didn't affect his his genius. <laughs> no, and he still produced. A lot of people didn't realize that he had this drinking issue. You yeah, know. and that, and, and there were other other things too. I hear, but but you know that's uh, that he obviously had to drink to to uh, deal with his own devils. Whatever. I don't know. 
Well, and his best one of his best friends was George Firth, who was rapidly um, AA. George was in AA for generations and, de- and tried to get Steve to go to to AA, and uh, and he took him to an AA meeting, and and this, George said that Steve was very very emotional, hearing people tell all these stories. And when they left, he said, "Well, what do you think?" And Steve said, "This is one of the most moving experiences I've ever had, and I really understand why AA works." And George said. Would you come to another meeting with me? And she would say, "No, I will never get near that place again." (laughs) (laughs) That's a a funny story. Oh, and he never gave up his little pastime. No, no. When he was coming to my house for dinner, my my secretary called him and said, "Uh, "What would you like for dinner?" And he said, "Vodka, vodka, and more vodka." That was his, his, his verbatim response. Yeah. What an easy guess, right? Yeah. All you need is a glass. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Uh, I remember when you, it was years ago, you called to say you were going to get married and that Judge Judy was um, going to do the ceremony. Yes, she was the officiant. She she uh, went so far as to get, um, I forget the term, legal uh uh, vestment to be able to uh, sign <laughs> the the marriage license, and and it was a, a dual ceremony. It was just Judy. I mean, a dual a dual officiant. The other officiant was a Reverend Gabriel Ferrer, who is the son of Rosemary Clooney and Jose Ferrer. So uh, uh, it was a, a, a very special day. Right, and you were very close to Rosemary Clooney, as I remember. Yes, I saw her daughter Maria uh, yesterday, and uh, I think of Rosemary every day of my life. I loved her. We did many, many shows together, and she, her voice just went deep into my heart from the first time I heard it as a kid, and, and I always felt so amazed that she had become a friend of mine. Mm. And I'm telling you, Michael, you have such great material that – you could really do a fantastic show. The problem is the time it takes with all you with all your work and concerts and I don't know how you could do it, fit it in, but you could do it and should. I wanna do it and you're right. It is an issue about time and figuring out priorities and a friend of mine who recently passed away, uh, he was uh, around 90 years old. Uh, uh, he used to use the phrase QTR, quality time remaining. So I always think mm. about QTR. I like that. And somewhere you're going to find it because every story, every person who left a footprint in your life has something amazing to say through you and through your music. So I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care, Michael. I miss you, and come visit whenever you're around. I I love you, and I'm grateful that we're friends, and thank you for, for this time. Michael Feinstein. And Michael's got an album, which is, you know, not brand but it's always new when Michael does it. So look for it. And I'm looking forward to another conversation with this great musical genius. Stay tuned, everyone. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC. WABC.